So again, thank you for that. Now, let's look to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29 and following. Look what he says in this one verse. By faith, the people, talking about Israel, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, you have to have a little bit of background to understand the magnitude of that one verse. And if you remember, the history is found back in Exodus. It begins in chapter 13, about middle way through, and it goes all the way through chapter 14. And that Exodus passage just begins to really blossom for us in that section of Scripture. I'll try to do a, a good job of giving you a summary of the background, if you'll allow me, by listening. God did not lead Israel out of what would be a normal pathway from Egypt to the promised land. He determined that they were not yet fit to move through the area of the Philistines. They were not ready for battle, and he knew that they would be discouraged in that. So instead of taking them the normal route through the Philistine territory, he determined to have them leave Egypt and not take the shortest route, but actually take the longest route and a route that some would even question was even wise, uh, knowing that they were not quite ready for the journey. He led them broadly through the wilderness and actually toward the Red Sea. Now, if you remember, God is physically leading them. In the daytime, he's leading them with his glory and a cloud before them, and at night, his Shekinah glory is revealed in the fire that burns before them, and where he moves, they move. He is very presently with them, leading them. Now, the Lord instructed Moses to order the Israelites to camp at Pi-Hahirath, in that area just north of the sea, between Migdal and the sea. And in military terms, that really doesn't make a lot of sense because it's going to pinch them. The position would seemingly entrap the Israelites between the desert and the sea and potentially the Egyptian soldiers who would be coming their way. Egypt would only have to swoop down from the west and move them closer to the sea and trap them. But this was no trap for Israel. This would be a trap to Pharaoh. This would be a trap to his army, that God's glory would be revealed. So when word reached the king of Egypt that Israel had left, and they had left with a sense of defiance, with a hand raised as they're leaving, he determines along with his officials that he has made a mistake, and he asks of himself and his officials, why do we let these slaves leave? And he determines to pursue after them. So he himself leads out with 600 of his top charioteers and their chariots. And then the other officials bring all the other chariots and the marching troops of, of the army of Egypt. And they hot trail after Israel. And they are determined that they are going to recapture them or they are going to destroy them. So the entire Egyptian army, the horses, the chariots, the charioteers, the troops are all advancing against Israel, catching them at their camp and looking at the vast numbers of people that are trapped there geographically in that region, they must have thought this will be easy. This will be easy for us to bring them back or to annihilate them. And when Israel saw that Egypt was coming, they panicked. 
And they immediately cried out to God and began to argue against Moses. Man, they were pretty good about that. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? To lash out against those who are leading us as God is instructing. Yeah, we, we all tend to do that sometimes. And here's what Israel said to Moses. Why did you lead us out of Egypt? Why did you lead us into this wilderness? Were there not enough graves for us in Egypt that you would have to bring us out here to be buried in the sand? What have you done to us? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? And they said to him, did we not tell you that we did not want to leave, that we would rather be slaves? I mean, just words coming out of them that made no sense whatsoever, but they were in the immediate, not understanding all that God was doing they were thinking that it would have been better for them to remain slaves than to be freed by God. But now look at verse 13 of Exodus 14. It's on the screen for you. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be quiet. You only have to be silent. It's a good word. All right, so I want to pause along the way. I first want to mention three things to you. Then I want to mention two things to you. Then I want to mention one thing to you. Three, two, one in this passage. Three things. First of all, three things in this call to faith and obedience, the response that is evident in this passage. And one is, is found in the Egyptians. They were fighters of faith, or we might say fighters against faith. Here's a response. God is calling all people to faith and obedience to him. Everybody in the world is called to faith and obedience to God. And there's three responses that are obvious from this text. Number one, you'll fight against it. You'll fight against his call to have faith and obedience into him. And the, the Egyptians were fighting against him. They were rejectors of God and they were rejectors of his commands. Uh, the very basic understanding that people ought to have is looking at creation and the basis of their understanding of God is simply there is a God and he has created that's the basis. If you don't have that, you're never coming to faith in Christ for salvation. It's the beginning of it. But Egypt was a rejecter of God. And they were rejectors of his commandments. They were rejectors of his call. And they had been hearing God's call for their life through Moses and Aaron, but yet they were rejectors. All over the world, there are rejectors. The second response is actually seen by much of Israel. And that is, they were demonstrating a faulty faith. So the call is to have true and absolute faith and obedience to God. And Israel heard that call, but their faith is faulty. They, they wanted the benefits of God without trusting and obeying him. Did you hear that? They wanted the things of God, the blessings of God, the benefit of God, but they did not want to trust him nor obey him, and that is a faulty faith. It's a faith that claims something, but really is not justified by truth in response with faith and obedience. 
So as a result, they experience the prevailing grace and goodness of God. I, I wish I had time to just pull away and, and just park right here for a minute because people get confused by this. There is a prevailing grace of God that is demonstrated because God is good. Don't misinterpret God's prevailing grace and his goodness in your life as his satisfaction with you. No, it's just the measure of God's prevailing grace and goodness. So if you have a faulty faith, you're unwilling to trust and obey God, and you're thinking God is okay with you because his grace and goodness is known to you, don't miss the opportunity to have true saving faith by believing that God is okay with your faulty faith. He's not. I need to remind us that Israel, in their faulty faith, get to cross the Red Sea, but they do not enter the promised land. This entire generation is going to be extinguished. Why? Because they had faulty faith. And if you know the narrative and you go all the way through the narrative, you'll see that God will use the remnant of the next generation who will actually cross into the promised land. And that's because this generation that I'm talking about right now has faulty faith. They claim to have faith in God. They know the grace of God and the goodness of God and even the miracles of God, but they don't know the saving power of God that comes by faith and obedience. And the third is demonstrated by Moses, and it's his uh, exhibiting fervent faith. So there's a third response. The first was your fighting faith. The second is you have a faulty faith. And as we see in Moses, later we'll see in Joshua and Caleb, there is a fervent faith that some have, and that is a steady faith growth, one that's living in the presence of God and loving to, obediently to walk in the pleasure of God. They, they are purposing to do so. Now, genuine Christianity requires faith in Christ Jesus, who graciously gives new natures to those who deny themselves bear the cross of Christ and walk in the newness of life afforded to them so let me ask you with that definition on the screen let me ask you is your faith a rejecting faith a faulty faith or a fervent faith the fervent faith is the one that God blesses the fervent faith is the one that God justifies the fervent faith is the one that God makes to be righteous. So I pray that you'll have fervent faith and that uh, that would be obvious. Now look, those who claim to have faith, but it's not genuine, have a shady character about them, but God's glorious light is gonna shine on them one day and all of that shadiness is going to be exposed. I can tell you from personal experience, you can fake other people off and you can even fake yourself off, but God will not be faked. Truth will be exposed. And as the scripture says, all things will come to light, even those things done in darkness. And the faulty faith will be exposed one day. And if that sort of brings tension to you right now, if you're, if you're a little restless with that idea right now, that is God's grace in your life. That is the Spirit of God convicting because now you can do something about it. But in the day of judgment, you will not be able to do anything about it. 
So we're grateful that God would bring conviction to us about our faith and challenge us to come to genuine faith. How do you get genuine faith? You ask him for it. God is gracious. Listen, he will give you faith. It's a gift. Just as grace is a gift, faith is a gift. Ask him for it. And God will give you a great confidence and a great certainty with, with incredible faith. So are you a fighter of faith or do you have flawed faith or do you have fervent faith? You're going to fit into one of those three areas. I plead that you would be surrendered to Christ and have fervent faith, supernatural faith by you asking him for it and receiving it by him. Now the narrative continues with Moses crying out to the Lord. The people are coming against him and he just cries out to the Lord and the Lord says, why are you crying out to me? Tell those people to turn around and start moving. Uh, he puts Moses right to action and, and the Lord announces his intention for them. You tell them to get moving. You pick up your staff and you raise your hand over the sea and the waters will divide. And when the waters divide, Israel will walk right through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And God assured him that he would see the great glory that God was about to demonstrate. And all of Egypt would know that he would be the Lord by the time this thing is over with. It's a great passage to go back to. If you haven't read it in a while, you ought to read that, particularly chapter 14. And of course, the angel of the Lord who had been leading them. Now, this is interesting. I, I, there might be some who would argue with me, and that's okay. I think this is a pre-incarnate Jesus who has been leading before them along with the cloud and the pillar of fire by night. And it says that the angel of the Lord moves position. He no longer stays ahead of them where the sea is. He comes around to the backside of them and the pillar of the cloud and the pillar of fire, which is gonna be demonstrated by night, comes to the rear of the, of the people of Israel and flanks them and is in between where Egypt is who has been coming against Israel. So now you have the Red Sea, you have the people of Israel, you have Christ the Lord and his glory above him uh, there in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. And you have the, uh, Egypt behind them. And, and that amazing work of God is keeping the enemy from his people. And when nightfall comes, that, that cloud just erupts into flames so that all of Israel has the light necessary for them to do what God is calling them to do. And so Moses stands at the water's edge and he raises his hand with his staff over that water and the Lord opens up the water so it's like walls of water on both sides. Are you seeing the movie right now? Yeah, I hate that because that is not what it looked like multiply it times a gazillion and you'll have an image in your mind instead of that jello being pushed back <laughs> the wind blows in such a way from the east that it actually dries up the seabed and Israel has means to literally walk through the sea on dry ground with walls of water on both the left and the right it's an amazing image that you and I have in our mind and with perfect timing God allows the Egyptians to advance chasing after Israel right there in the middle of the the sea as they are moving along on that dry ground but along the way he impedes their ability to find them to chase after them all the way and, and catch up to them he he mars the uh and twist the chariot wheels so that they're they're not able to move very well and it's then that Egypt recognizes 
the God of Israel is fighting against us. And in perfect timing, as Israel is advancing beyond the seabed and onto dry ground, it's then that the Egyptians determine, let's get out of here. Their God is for them and their God is against us. But that trap had already been set. God had positioned that enemy exactly where he wanted them. And as Moses is on the other side of the shore, he is instructed by God to raise his hand over the sea again and the sea immediately starts to come back and it floods against all the people of Egypt who had pursued after the people of Israel and every one of them are destroyed. There's not a single one of them that survives such that the people of Israel are on the other side of the shore and they begin to see the Egyptians wash up on the shore. They're all of them dead. And in that, they stand in awe of God and give glory to God. It's an amazing accomplishment of God the Father. He's doing that wondrous work, which brings me to that second point that I wanted to make. Here's two purposes for God putting his people in a desperate situation. Now, we need to recognize that God has sovereignly organized every single detail that has come about in this narrative. It's not by a novice approach that Israel finds itself pinched in a trap. It's not that they are militarily naive, but it is that God is in the midst of every detail and has put his people in a very precarious position. He's put them in a place that they will be utterly destroyed with ease if it were not for his supernatural intervention. And I just need to pause and remind us that we ought to give God credit for every time we are in a position that we have to turn our attention to him and say, but God, if you don't move, this will not happen. But God, if you don't heal me, it will not happen. But God, if you don't rescue me, it will not happen. But God, if you don't, this won't. God will often place us in those positions so that we might turn our attention in faith and obedience and response and trust to him. And that's exactly what he's doing here. God has put them in a position that they could only have victory if he intervenes. So what is God's purpose for putting his people in such a position? Well, we could infer that God is building their character, that he's building their faith, or that he's building their spiritual capacity or their trust or their courage. Or We could infer all those things and that might be true. Or we could, we could talk about the fact that Israel was actually rescued and saved by God passed through the waters much like you and I are saved by Jesus Christ and passed through the waters of baptism we could talk about that and that would be true as well we could point to this great illustration and many others that are so rich in this text but God specifically gives us two purposes for him putting his people in this desperate situation and they're pretty easy it's this, he put them in a desperate situation to demonstrate his glory to the unsaved and to the saved. When it comes down to it, if you're wondering why God has put you in a position that's difficult, 
Wonder why he's put you in a desperate place. Wonder why you're in the position that you're in or in the predicament that you're in. It's because of this. God wants his glory to be known by the unsaved and the saved and he's gonna use you and your illustration of life to do that. In that moment, in the hospital, in that moment, in the funeral home, in that moment, in the brokenness of the situation, in that moment when the business is in turmoil, in that moment when your life is in doubt, God has put you in that position so that he might be glorified because in every way, God means to be glorified in every aspect of our life. All things are created by him and are for him and are for his what? glory so in that moment you can say woe am I woe is me you can say God why did you you can say anything you want you can point your fingers in any other way but you ought to settle into this truth God how can you be glorified in this how can you be glorified in this Find me trusting you, obedient to you. Find me full of faith in you that you might be glorified even in this. And sure, pray that God would get you out of those desperate situations. But on the forefront of your prayer, may God's glory be on your lips. May that be the case for me as well. Here's the way the Lord gave this as he was instructing Moses to He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and all the Egyptians. What, they shall know that I am the Lord. This is God's revelation of his glory. And the end of the day, all of Egypt will know God alone is the Lord of all. And to his servant Moses he said of his own people Israel saw the great power that the Lord God used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord they revered the Lord and they believed in the Lord why because they saw his glory they saw his power they saw the distinction of God that only he could do that and so God's glory is is there I want to mention real quickly that judgment and salvation come in the same waters don't let that detail just kind of slip away judgment and salvation are occurring in the same waters at the moment Israel is being saved by the waters Egypt is being judged in the waters and I need to remind you that there is a day in which judgment and salvation will come in the presence of Christ there is a day when all people the living and the dead will come and rise and stand before Christ the Lord And in that moment, judgment and salvation will occur. For those of us who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ is a gracious gift that he has afforded us through his cross and resurrection and by his spirit, we take that moment and we glorify God for that wondrous gift of salvation that is ours and now complete in Jesus Christ. And on that same day, the dead in Christ who remain in their sin, who are knowing the judgment of God is resting upon them, who will be separated from him for all eternity in a very literal place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and the fiery pits of that place. In that moment, they will give glory to God for they will know that his justice and his righteousness is true. 
In the same waters came judgment and salvation in the day of our Lord. In the same moment will come judgment and salvation. Oh, my friends, I beg that you would come to faith in Christ if you have not done so. I beg that you would yield your life to him so in that day you'll glory in his salvation and not in his judgment. But that brings me to the last thing, just one one instruction that God gave to his people when they were in a very desperate situation. Now, we all face desperate situations that require supernatural faith. And those trials, listen to me, those trials are God's perfect plan. They are part of God's perfect plan. So when the challenge is great and the circumstances are critical and the hardship is immense, Follow the instruction that God gave to his people when they were in the same place. And it's found for us in Exodus 14, 13 and 14, the beginning of verse 15. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Tell the people of Israel to move forward. Now, let me just, in that instruction, there's five things that God is saying. And if we could commit this to memory, jot it down, come back to it, that would all be good. The first is this, fear not. Fear not. The God of all eternity is right in the midst of the details. You don't have to be fearful. I'm most fearful when the unknown is before me. And I'm wondering about that. What's it going to be like? Okay, I just need to settle back into the truth. God knows all things. The timeless God of the universe who loves me, who loves you, knows all things. It is not taking him by surprise. He is sovereignly ruling and reigning, and he acts in every way towards us with love. I need not fear. I need not fear. And so although Israel could only see one result with Egypt pressing against them, God knew the right result. And so he told them, fear not, fear not. I know how this is going to end, fear not. And he said, stand still. Now listen, it takes supernatural faith to stand still in such a predicament. It takes super, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. You're not going to be able to muster up that kind of faith. Listen, this is a faith that God will give you. Fear not and stand still. Standing still means I am faithful in God's word. Whatever God has said, I'm going to stand on that. I'm going to stand on God's word. I'm going to stand on its promises. That's the reason why you and I are in desperate places. This is where we come to. We come to God's word and we say, Lord, I may not understand all that I see around me. I may not see how this is going to end well, but I know this is what your word says and I know the conclusion that is found in this word and I'm going to stand on this. And I'm going to stand still right here on this truth, confident in your promises that you have given to me. That there is a day that this will be very different. And though these people might take my body, they will not take my soul. And though this disease may ravage me from the outside or the inside, it will not ravage my soul. 
my spirit will remain confident. Though I might be broken and weak externally in my flesh, I am growing in strength in the inner person, standing still on your word and your promises. So fear not, stand still with great standing on the words and the promises of God, and then watch the Lord. This is what Moses said, watch the Lord. You and I ought to look to Jesus. Where is he in the midst of this? So we, we have a tendency to just look at all the details of the problem. No, no, no. Let's get our eyes up a little bit and look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's look to him, the one who has written every one of them before any of the days of our life ever began. Let's look to him. Where is he in the midst of this? I can be fearless and I can stand still with my eyes set on Jesus, looking to him, looking and watching for the Lord, and I can stay calm in the midst of that, knowing the certainty of Christ our Lord who is on our side, and finally, then I can move forward in obedience. Now listen, that's the order that God gave to Moses. Moses gave to the people, and the people now that we're reading about are encouraging us. And that order is very important. I have a tendency to jump to number five pretty quick and try to move forward. And God says, uh, Randy, you need to get your spirit right. Let fear not be your motivator. You need to get the understanding that you can stand on my word and my promises and put your sight on me. You can remain calm. And when you do, then you can mobilize in my word. You can do what I've called you to do. And some of you are in a desperate position right now. I, I, I hear you. You're wondering what to do. Come back to these five little points here at the bottom, this instruction. Just trust God in the midst of this. Have great supernatural faith that only he can give you and see what he'll do. I think you'll be glorying in him in the end. Now let's just pause and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the history that's so rich to us, for the way your Holy Spirit moves as we're reading it, encouraging us and championing us, calling us to truth and faith. And I'm thankful that you give all the means necessary for us to have and hold genuine faith. We bless you for that. And pray for anybody that's hearing this message or these words that they would come to faith in Christ today if they're not in relationship with you. And if there's a faulty faith, a claimed faith that's not real, I pray today would be the day of genuine faith that they would deny themselves and take up your cross, follow hard after you with great faith. And for those who are in desperate situations, Lord, needed some encouragement today from you. I pray that you've given that to them and they would be confident in what you're doing. May you receive glory for it all in Jesus' name.